You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Content warning. Blood sucking, syphilis, and microscope fights? Action! Excitement! Horror romance! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on... What? What? Mad Universe! As already mentioned, the creature was scarcely a span long. In his bird-shaped head gleamed a pair of round, sparkling eyes, and from his narrow beak protruded a long, sharp thing like a rapier, while two horns came out from the forehead close below the beak. The neck began close under the head also, in the manner of a bird, but grew thicker and thicker, so that without any interruption the former grew into a shapeless body, almost like a hazelnut, and seemed covered with dark brown scales like an armadillo. But the strangest part was the formation of the arms and legs. The two former had joints and were rooted in the creature's cheeks, close by the beak. Immediately under these arms was a pair of legs, and still further on another pair, both double-jointed like the arms. Uh, these last feet appeared to be those on which the creature really relied, for besides that they were longer and stronger than the others, he wore upon them very handsome golden boots with diamond spurs. Master Flea by E.T.A. Hoffman uh, 1822. Um, hello, and welcome to What Mad Universe, the podcast that puts genre fiction under a microscope. That, that'll be relevant later. Uh, I'm Philip Rice, and with me as always is Adam Prosser. Hello. Um, and uh, today we're discussing uh, a work by E.T.A. Hoffman called Master Flea, a very strange book that was written by a... Uh, syphilitic man on his deathbed oh really um, <laughs> i did not know that okay yeah yeah we'll go into there's some interesting behind the scenes stuff on this one <laughs> okay um, well first the, of all you should, mention chapter... to, you should mention to people uh, who eta hoffman is just so they what else he wrote uh yeah yeah i'll get i'll get into that um but uh yeah he was a um uh he was uh dying of syphilis while he wrote this um and the last chapters were actually dictated because he couldn't leave his bed um, Makes sense. And it was published after his death because of a lot. It was uh, there was a. We'll get into it, but there's a big it, censorship thing around this book. It's our Christmas episode, everyone. <laughs> Merry yes, Christmas. The book. Uh, E.T.A. Hoffman is probably most famous these days as the writer of the Nutcracker and Mouse King, which is the basis of Tchaikovsky's uh, ballet, The Nutcracker. Um, so th that's what most people would at least in outside of Germany, would probably know him 
from if they know them at all. Um, um, this is similar in some ways to uh, to Nutcracker in that it's sort of um, a magical. It's like the real world, but there's also like a magical thing going on behind the scenes and right. um, um, connections with uh, some sort of fairy tale kingdom that still exists somehow in sort of a nebulous way. And, and it's, it's uh, a lot of a lot of dream logic and um, ambiguous what what's real and what's not. And it, it's set at uh, Christmas. It does. It. Yeah. I, yep. I knew we were going to do this because of the Nutcracker connection made it a Christmas episode. But the the story is actually set at Christmas or starts at Christmas. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. Um, it's mostly set in the days after Christmas, but it starts in on Christmas morning. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts with a grown man opening his Christmas presents. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Hoffman also wrote, uh, and we've talked about this on a previous episode, but uh, the Sandman which is uh, one of the earliest appearances of a robot in, in uh, fiction. Not necessarily the first, but like an early version of an automaton with mm-hmm. uh, the character Olympia. Well, she's not really a character. She's not, she's not a sentient robot. She's like an automaton who's, who's designed to mimic movement and stuff. Um, but she enough to fool people, but she's still, despite being formed beautifully is uh puts people off with her uh unnatural movements and it was sort of hoffman predicting the uncanny valley effect which i've talked right. about yeah yeah you mentioned um that. so he was very forward thinking in a lot of ways um and um and he also wrote one called uh the automatons or the automata which i haven't read but it seems to be about the mechanical turk thing right because as we said in the uh murder in the the murder machine episode it was a uh, it, that was that was all the rage, the the mechanical Turk and all the the of the various uh, yeah. automata. So it seems to be era. a novel about that. But like I said, I haven't read that one. He also wrote a vampire story, which I need to get to. <laughs> Clearly, you have to read everything vampire related. Yeah. Um. Now, was he German or Dutch? E.T.A. Hoffman. German, as far as I know, uh, uh, lived in Germany. Oh, okay, right. Uh, I guess it's set in Frankfurt. I guess because two of the characters are very clearly Dutch, I kind of associate. Uh, yeah, because they're based on real people. Right, right. As you mentioned, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah I, uh, we'll get into that. Um, so it's kind of hard to describe the plot of this one um, because. But it's try anyway, because I sure as heck couldn't make heads <laughs> or tails of it <laughs> um, while reading it. Yeah. A lot of dream logic. It's a uh, it's a fairy tale. It's it is a children's book, but it's for children from you know two hundred years ago. So it's uh, um, it's not exactly probably accessible to children nowadays without some significant rewrite stuff. Um, so uh, it's about a uh, man named Peregrine Peace uh, who um, we we start the story on Christmas morning, and it's um, it's set a somebody opening their presents, and it's sort of framed as it's a child opening his presents and getting really excited about the rocking horse and everything and just exclaiming, you know, um, a mighty steed sort of thing. Um, but we soon discover that he's a 36-year-old man who's living with his maid. Hmm. Um, and um, he's a sort of a, a childlike worldview. Um, then we get a uh, some backstory on him. Um, he was... Um, uh, his, his father was like a, a rich businessman, um, but he was um, early on didn't speak for, for quite a while. Um, and then when he, he did, he still preferred to keep to himself. 
Um, he got really interested in stories of uh, fairy tales and far-off lands, particularly like the the Orient, uh, like the mythical Orient, not like the real, you know, Asia, um, but like the the mythical idea of the Orient. He got obsessed with, and uh, this section actually. Um, I'm sure it wasn't intentional, but this character comes across as autistic to me, um, mm. particularly the uh, the not speaking for a while. I I, um, mm. I myself uh, apparently spoke at the uh, usual time, but uh, uh, definitely the the aspects of you know hyperfixation on certain topics and not really caring about other topics, even though they were supposedly important. Mm. Right, uh, and getting know, like and getting would, kind of ritualistic about things where he yeah, wants to yeah. open and, his um, gifts. Yeah, you know, like I could have done my schoolwork, but it didn't interest me, so I didn't. Right, sort of thing. Um, and uh, yes, like like you said, he, after his parents died, he just devotes his whole life and all his fortune to just repeating the same yearly things that they did, and but it's all for himself basically. He's living alone and with his maid um, and uh, um, his only real interaction is um, one thing he does, which is go out to a poor family and just keep presence on them. Um, and then vamoose before they can thank him sort of thing. Um, just because he wants to put wonder in, in a child's, you know, life. Um, so he's, he's definitely a, a positive character in that sense, like he definitely wants the best for people and he's, but he's very naive and he's very impractical. Um, and, um, uh, he gets involved in this strange circumstance, uh, involving various people who have, uh, sort of, this is very hard to put, um, romantic in the sense of the romantic movement, which Hoffman was a part of sort of doubles in the past uh versions of the form not just former life but like the, the implication of like a an earlier version of reality that was more fairy tale like yeah that um, was the part i got really confused about it there's a fairy tale that gets told uh early on which is about these two astronomers observing a princess being kidnapped by a genie or genius as he calls it and yeah. um and, or uh, she gets she gets uh, bitten by uh, the leech prince first, right. um, who uh, sucks her blood out. Everybody's in love with with this princess Gamahe chick. Uh, yeah. Um, so uh, and uh, she gets uh, after she gets bitten, she gets taken away by the genius Thetel, um and saved by the thistle Zaharit. And uh, there's a master flea involved, though they don't know that yet. Um, yeah, and um, she was sort of. Um, reborn as a in a flower form uh this is actually all ties in with eta hoffman's uh philosophy um he was part of the romantic movement as i said in the early ages of the world according to the romantic interpretation joyous creativity knew no bounds with equal spontaneity nature expended energy on all possible varieties of experiment the life force having accumulated matter about one or two more particles of himself might create a lion just as easily as it might dissolve that lion to form to cre uh, lion form to create a flower, a cloud, a stone, a man, a centaur, a mermaid, an emerald, or again a lion. Form might succeed form. Nature was free and at play. 
vitality was inexhaustible. Such was the golden age of old. Fixed forms and restrictions, restricted progressions betoken the fall, uh, fall and capital, like the fall of man in the Bible, from the exuberant childlike grace, and with the fall came sorrow and travail. Man, evolving, uh, learned much and raised himself admiringly. In doing so, however, he came to lay undue stress on the principle of the rational mind to the harm of the other con constituent faculties, uh, much as the joyous and credulous child becomes a problematic and doubting adolescent. Genuine adulthood uh, must adjust childhood's values with the values of adolescence, and it must raise both to a higher power, not by a progress of mere addition, but by a progress process of multiplication. The mission of Romanticism was not to regain the golden age of old, the childhood of the race, nor to undo the age of reason, the adolescence of the race, but to bring both into harmony within a new and greater golden age, the adulthood of the race. So it's uh, basically philosophically merging the, the fantastic adolescent uh, past with the reasoned future and creating right. something that's a little bit of both. Okay, that's interesting. That's a fully I always formed person. I always heard of romantic movement as kind of a pushback against uh, the Enlightenment and that it was, you know, I mean, understandably. But yeah, I, I knew it wasn't to be like, yes, back to, uh, you know, away from technology. It wasn't Luddite. It was just like, you know, let's... Uh, yeah, just uh, reclaiming aspects of the past without foregoing right. all reason and stuff. Right. So it's sort of... Um, and this book is really uh, about that with the, um, the past selves who are obviously a very silly fairy tale like and the present is very uh mundane and uh what this book well what, what the characters I mean, end up other than all the crazy stuff that happens every five seconds but yes <laughs> yeah due, due to the but that's due to the reemergence of the old stuff and that's what the characters grow into at the end uh, uh harmonization of the two selves right um so yes uh all, all the uh human characters in the presence in the present are reincarnations of these various characters we were talking about, the Thistle of the Sahara, uh, the Princess Gamahe, um, who ruled in Famagusta, uh, mm. which is a real place, but here it's like a, a again, Orient Orientalist um, mm -hmm. uh, fantasy world. Um, right, Arabian because, Nights kind you know, of thing. Yeah, yeah. So there, there, were, there were reincarnations. That's, so I have to admit, that kind of, I had a bit of a hard time with this one um mm -hmm. it it's written in a very uh dense and well baroque style i would say uh in a way that uh reminds me of um henry james um is a writer who i tried to read uh, he's he's a 19th century writer and he has this extremely belabored uh uh overly precious i guess style is a way of doing it and um i was not a fan he wrote he wrote the turn of the screw for instance um okay and and it, you know this wasn't as bad as that for me um but it is very um affected and he can't just describe this what's happening he has all these like circumlocutions in the text that make it very hard for me it made me very hard to focus on the story so things like okay. them being reincarnations was not clear to me i thought they were all just like immortal beings who had somehow re-emerged in the present but i guess it's that they well some of them are the, yeah. the two scientists are 
Right. Well, that was the thing. And then it was like, but they seem, but given that, they seem to forget who they are until they're suddenly reminded of it. And it, uh, not the scientists, but the the other characters. Okay, that's what I'm saying. So the scientists were reincarnations. Master Flea obviously is immortal, no, and I... the sci- no the scientists are just immortal for some reason, like <laughs> through science, I guess, through alchemy or something. Okay, but then they they they're like suddenly like, oh, by the way, I was that I was your arch nemesis. Oh yeah, I was your arch nemesis. Like they'd forgotten. It's really weird. I okay. Did, was there well, an explanation let, for that that I didn't get? Or like I said, a lot of it's dream logic. So yeah. Um, well, that's uh, if you're looking for rationality in this book, you won't find it. I mean, um, fair, but it's not the kind of whims like it's it's kind of whimsical. It's got that whimsy to it, but it doesn't feel like when you said it was dictated on its deathbed by a syphilitic guy, a lot snapped into place for me because it's got, okay. it's not just I'm I'm fine with dream logic and weird. We did Jurgen like that's this kind of thing done really well, I think Jurgen um, and certain other things, but this was very much like. Uh, this is like a five-year-old telling a story where just something crazy keeps happening okay. with no I, setup. I disagree. I okay. I enjoyed it immensely. This is my second read-through. Well, so. I didn't hate um, it. I just didn't, like, it was really hard to, it didn't cohere for me very well, that's all. But there's definitely ideas in here I thought were fun and that, that I thought were entertaining. Uh, but it was just really hard to follow as a story, I thought. It seemed very random uh, and arbitrary. Uh, it is. But I like that. So, <laughs> um, anyway, um, I I should talk about my history with this. Not that it goes back that far, but I was researching uh, where lightsabers came from in fiction, and came across this uh, as like a precursor to the idea, basically. Um, right. The uh, the two uh, scientists, uh, which we'll talk about more about them, but uh, I'll just read off some of this uh, text here, maybe. Uh, no sooner did okay. Lovenhook perceive his enemy Schwamadam than he burst from Peregrine with the utmost exertion of his last strength and planted himself with his back against the floor of the mysterious chamber where the fair one was in prison. Schwamadam, seeing this, took a little telescope from his pocket, drew it out at full length, and fell upon his adversary, uh, exclaiming, Draw, scoundrel, if you have courage. Lovenhook had quickly, had quickly a similar instrument in his hand, drew it out, um, Sorry. Drew it out as the other one had done, and cried, Come on, I am ready, and you shall soon feel my prowess. Each now put the glass to his eye, and fell furiously upon the other with sharp, murderous glances, now lengthening, now shortening his weapon by drawing the tubes in and out. There were feints, parries, thrusts, in short, all the tricks of the fencing school, and with every moment they seemed to grow more angry. Whenever one was hit, he cried aloud, sprang into the air, cut the most wonderful capers, made the most beautiful entrechant, and turned and turned pirouettes as well as the best dancer of the Parisian stage, till his adversary fixed him fast with a shortened telescope. Um, when the other was hit, he did precisely the same, and in the same way, uh, in this and in this same way, they went on in interchangeably with the most violent springs, the maddest gestures, and the most furious cries. The perspiration dropped from their brows. The blood-red eyes seemed starting from their heads. As, um, and as there appeared no other cause of their St. Vitus's dance than they're looking at each other through their glasses, they might have been taken for maniacs, just escaped from a madhouse. For the rest, it was a very pretty sight. So they have um, uh, microscope weapons that are essentially laser guns. 
Right. Now, aren't they, and they except aren't, aren't they telescope weapons rather than microscopes? Yeah, yeah, I guess. Um, they're, they're microscopists, so. Yeah, well, yes, because they're, these two characters are both based on famous scientists who use microscopes, including one who invented the microscope? No, no, but um, uh, they were certainly early pioneers of it. Uh, uh, right. They are based uh, on uh, Anton van Leeuwenhoek, uh, a real-life Dutch scientist, uh, Antoine van Leeuwenhoek, uh, I think, mm -hmm. uh, who is considered the father of microbiology. And the other one, Mr. Schwammer, is uh, in the book, really, John Schwammerdon, and based on the real-life Dutch biologist Jan Schwammerdon, who was a pioneer, pioneering use of the microscope in dissections. Um, right. So they were both real people. Um, in this book, they said they were, um, they were fake buried in various places, but they really lived on. <laughs> oh, I see. So they were they would have been dead at the time that it was published. Yeah. Oh, I get it. Okay. And and but and he was kind of resurrecting them as like mythical figures who are also who are because if you're a microbiologist, I think they're described as astronomers at one point too, right? Um, yeah, they're they're general purpose scientists. And also magicians, because those are the same yep. thing. <laughs> and philosophers. They're all the same thing in this book. Um, but yeah, the, the fight that you're describing, um, the way I read it, and again, you know, maybe it's just my tired brain not cohering, they didn't really shoot beams of light at each other. They were just like, it was a fight about looking at each other. Is that, is that correct? Or am I way off? No, no, they, they, no, I, I'm pretty sure it was like beams of light, but you, invisible beams of light. I see. Okay. So they I okay. So it was the idea that they were shooting beams of light at each other but no one could see it except them or yeah. maybe not even them. Yeah, and they were using sword fighting techniques. So that's where the lightsaber thing Right. Came in. See, so I got not really lightsabers. I got that. See, I thought it was actually intended as the joke that they were looking at each other and they were each trying to avoid being looked at through the microscope and that was how they were doing duels and somehow that but I don't know. I mean, that would make as much sense as anything else in this book. Well, they started with pain when they got hit, though. So. Right? Yeah. I I don't know. It's the the micros the the astronomer's code. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure they're they're intended to be actual weapons. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, and uh, and yeah, and what do you make of the thistle Zaharit? <laughs> uh, he's the uh, love interest of uh, the princess Gamahe was the daughter of King Secaucus of Famagusta, who is also the talisman that he wears on his on his crown. Right. But it all makes sense. Yeah. Now, and again, there's just a thistle who's a humanoid thistle? Yeah, they they, they these um in in the romantic version of the past, they these are people but they also are represented by uh like uh Princess Gamahe is a flower. And, oh, I um, see. Oh, okay. All right, and the leech prince is a leech, and well, the the genus Thedal is a well a spirit, a genie, um, right? And um, uh, yeah, I get it. Okay, so it is it's it's got that kind of like yeah fairy tale where like the personification of the bear spoke to the man kind of thing. Yeah, I exactly. Okay. All right, and it's this is the thistle. Uh, who is also a who? I, okay, and that I guess that does make sense now too. Thinking of the ending, that the thistle and the flower are alive and they're in love with each other or whatever. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, 
Um, and uh, the, the thistle of the Sahara has been reincarnated as um, Peregrine Tisa's best friend, uh, or old friend, uh, uh, George Papouche. Uh, the Princess Gamahe has been uh, res resurrected as Dorcha Everdink. Uh, Elverdink? Dorcha Elverdink? No, Dor uh, Dorche, Dorje Everdink, which is Dorothy. Apparently it's Dorch. Apparently it's Dorcha. Yeah, Dorcha. Dorcha. Uh, Elverdink, who also goes by Alina, um, who works for uh, one of the scientists, uh, Lovenhook. Um, and um, Lovenhook has captured uh, uh, Master Flea, or in the past had captured Master Flea, was the king or the chief of the uh, of the fleas, um, and they're sort of like a well, they're I mean they're literally fleas, but they're they're also uh, have weird powers and stuff and control over um, the microscopic world, um, and uh, with uh, with control over the master flea, he can control all the fleas, and he sets up a flea circus that people can come and view through. Microscopes and it's apparently made him rich. Mm -hmm. He's invented a laser gun, but this is the thing that makes him rich. It sort of reminded <laughs> me of the, you know, like classic supervillains who like invent a freeze ray but just use it to rob banks. Right. I don't want to cure cancer. <laughs> I just want to turn people into dinosaurs. Yeah. Exactly. Uh <laughs> Uh, well, we don't want to turn people into dinosaurs, but we do need to take a break for um, some advertisements. So we will be back uh, as quick as a flea. Fans of video games, history, or video game history will definitely want to listen to Retronauts. Each week, Bob Mackey and myself, that's Jeremy Parrish, dive into the stories behind the greatest games of the past and the history behind the hits of today. Check us out every Monday on the Greenlit Podcast Network. On Apocrypals, we talk about the parts of the Bible that a lot of people skip over. Like the wizard battles. The angel jacuzzis. A goat full of sins. 500 drunk elephants. And a man named Porky Party. And yes, that's all really in there. All this and more on Apocrypals every other week on the Greenlit Podcast Network. But uh, yeah, the, the, of course, the flea circus gets. Now, was it just a coincidence that he ran a flea circus? Because when Master Flea no, no, shows he, up, no, no, he 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 was only able to run the flea circus because he had control of Master Flea. Right. And he had Master gotten flea control of Master Flea a while back, and um, Master Flea is accidentally freed by uh, by Peregrine, um, and. Uh, that uh, sets the, the story in motion, basically. Like he, right. Um, Master Flea thinks that Peregrine rescued him intentionally, but Peregrine had no idea what was happening. Right. And there's a there's a scene. So when Master Flea first appears, he kind of just shows up, and he's described as being like a little homunculus who appears. So Master Flea can, like, grow and shrink, right? Am I not Not so much grow as make himself seen. Right. Yeah, because sometimes you it, can see him semi-normally, and then the other time, of course, he's a yeah, yeah. It's not so much that he's literally growing; it's just he they they have sort of weird ocular powers. Um, <laughs> yeah, as as the story has it, um, uh, the fleas uh, under Lovenhook had invented a um, 
uh, a microscope uh, that's itself microscopic and it fits in the eye and with it you can see other people's thoughts and um, Master Flea sits on Peregrine's shoulder and when Peregrine snaps his fingers Master Flea takes that as a signal to put the uh, put the eyepiece in in his eye and uh, Peregrine is able to see other people's thoughts <clears throat> for a significant portion of the story yeah so I, I so him making people Making himself visible to people is sort of like that using, um, I don't know, ocular techniques to uh, yeah. just blow himself up artificially without literally growing. Yeah, this is definitely this this uh, whole uh, uh, book is very uh, very into the idea of uh, microscopes, telescopes, just viewing viewing scopes using uh, lenses and so forth. And of course, you know the insects you can see through it, which include, you know, fleas. Obviously, um, yeah. That that's obviously sort of the prompt. That's the story prompt, as it were, <laughs> like microscopes yeah. and fleas, basically. And then it spins off into this very weird fantasy, fantasy uh, story. Um, but yeah, Master Flea it ends up being his his pal and giving him this. Uh, special uh, lens which lets him see people's thoughts again that's an interesting interpretation of how microscopes work but there you go um and it's, it's a super advanced nanotechnology yeah right <laughs> a wizard did it um and it's it's it, it it uh it's just interesting that like that is cool he's got master flea uh hiding in his basically in the in the the, the collar of his shirt and whispering stuff to him, and when he snaps his fingers, he puts in this uh, lens which lets him see everyone's thoughts, so he can outwit everyone very easily. And um, it lets him see. Uh, at one point, you know, Dorje, Dor sorry, Dorja, um, or which is really Dorothy, I believe in Dutch. Like I think that's that's just mm -hmm. the Dutch interpretation uh, or German, I guess. Um, Georgia Everdink, uh, he he sees her, and she's weird because she's kind of manipulative through the whole movie. yeah she's she's almost a villain in some ways yeah um she's trying to get master flea back because uh and we didn't mention this uh master flea's bites keep her young uh <laughs> since she was uh bitten by the uh leech prince um he's the only thing that can uh keep her alive basically so is is his um his like his old maid was she supposed to actually have been her? No, no. She, uh, the maid was um, uh, revealed at the end. Her other form was the uh, um, Queen of Golconda, which is based on a uh, 1761 story by uh, Stanislas Jan de Boufflers, which is sort of another um, uh, Orientalist fairy tale. Okay. Like specifically taken from that book, he just lifted it. The name, from the, book. the name, yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a different character, I imagine, but the name is taken from that. Like it would have been known at the time, huh? And um, yeah. So, 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 yeah. I, I didn't quite get that whole thing where she she was claiming to be Lena for a bit. The uh, no, uh, the uh, she was named nicknamed Alina under under the tutelage of. Um, of the scientist that she was working for. Right. Okay. So that was just, it was just that they had the same name and that was what was causing yeah. the confusion. Okay. 
uh, like yeah, I say, I got does... needlessly confused at this children's book. I'm t- I just <laughs> it's it's very weirdly hard to follow story wise for me. But yeah, like because there's a um, lot of something weirds happening, and you're supposed to sort of intuit what's going on, and like you're supposed to. Like, well, we all know that the idiot main character didn't know what was going on, don't we, kids? And I'm like, well, I'm yeah. also an idiot, and I don't know what's <laughs> going on either, apparently. But. Uh. It does have weird asides, like when it introduces Alina, the um, younger Alina, um, it says, uh, you know how books describe a beautiful woman? Just picture that. (laughs) Basically, it says that. Like, it doesn't describe her. It just says, you know, you know how this goes. Yeah. Well, that, see, that's, like, there's definitely, this is clearly a pretty, like, humorous, witty kind of book. Uh, It's just, it kind of gets too in love with its own wit, like I say, and it, it, it almost felt like it was getting a bit in the way of the story a bit in some ways, just because I was just having trouble following I, it. But I can again, see that, but I it, it, it amused dumb. me. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's amusing and witty in terms of its ideas. It's the story itself I had a bit of trouble following. Again, maybe I'm just dumb. Um, but anyway, so g- g- carry on, as you were saying. Um, as, uh, the, Where was I? Well, basically, then the the, the thistle Zaharit shows up and keeps trying to claim uh, claim uh, Dortje as his own. Yeah, yeah, George Papush and the um, and um, uh, yeah, Dortje uh, enters um, uh, Peregrine's house for the night because um, uh, she's trying to trick him into uh, giving up the Master Flea, which at the time he didn't know about. Um, and uh, uh, he just thinks he's he's helping this beautiful young woman um, who he's instantly fallen, not necessarily in love with, but in lust with, definitely. Um, and uh, uh, and this is this is all on Christmas Eve, uh, or a Christmas night, rather, uh, the night of Christmas. Um, well, that's then. It, then the story just becomes kind of a lot of back and forth with uh, running around and trying to avoid uh, George Papush and the two astronomers and and uh, Peregrine. They're all kind of falling into each other a lot and trying to and people scheming yeah. to get Master Flea back for various yeah. reasons. Yeah. So uh, Peregrine um, uh, gets arrested because he on charges of kidnapping young a young woman. Um, and this is the part that came into a lot of controversy uh, during the, the publishing of this book. Um, in uh, And we didn't actually, uh, the versions we read probably didn't include these chapters because they were omitted from the original publication. Um, but as he's arrested, he's um, um, questioned by the investigating privy counselor, uh, Narpanti, um, who was based very closely on the real Berlin police police commissioner at the time, Karl von Kemps. And there's a line here that um, from the um, excise chapters. Once the culprit has been identified, the crime would follow automatically. Even if the principal charge could not be proved, owing to the obduracy of the accused, only a shallow and superficial judge would be incapable of introducing issues into inquiry that would blemish the accused somehow and justify his arrest. Um, so basically saying, um, once you arrest somebody, you can find a charge. If you're good, <laughs> if you're good at your job, you can find a, something to hold them on, yeah. whether they're well, guilty boy, of glad, the original crime or not. I'm glad police don't do that anymore. That's, that's <laughs> good. Yeah. So, um, so uh, Hoffman was a lawyer, and uh, 
he was working for various government things and he was objecting to the um, uh, various, uh, at the time, overreaches in arresting people, uh, particularly over um, uh, what were deemed demagogues and uh, not really revolutionaries, but they were like um, uh, nationalists, which different connotation than today because they were trying to, Germany at the time was all broken up and the nationalists were trying to were trying to put it together in a way that um, was relatively fair for people and right. uh, the powers that be didn't like this and so they were persecuting all these people uh, particularly this this guy who was parodied in this book so this was um, a direct insult of the powers that be at the time and this um, got the book um, the the initial draft. Uh, um, delayed because it was um, um, like being censored by the powers that be um, and um, uh, this was only the the first half of the book which he had submitted to his publisher but they, they sort of found it and and there were lots of uh, back and forth uh, they probably would have pursued it further if he weren't already bedridden with syphilis um, <laughs> so uh, he managed to so he, he excised those chapters uh, and managed to write out the last part. Uh, uh, and it was, but he died before it was published. Uh, and even when it was published, it wasn't technically in its uh, complete form because those passages were removed. Hmm. So that's why uh, I believe it was part six or part five is only one part instead of part instead of two parts. I see. Because each one of these is is um, there's seven. Um, adventures they're called and each one is two parts but one of them is is excised my version is kind of um it's it's chopped up a little like it's one of these uh cheap versions where they obviously scanned it and used like text matching okay. software so there's some weird uh formatting issues so uh <laughs> every so often you just get a volume two suddenly appearing in the middle of uh in the middle of your the line of that you were reading kind of thing so oh, okay but um yeah this was available on gutenberg so you could have downloaded an epub from there but yeah <laughs> can't read it on the <laughs> bus um but yeah no it's no it, you can because it's an epub you can get it on your well, kindle the, or whatever well now i feel foolish there you go <laughs> um but anyway so I do that all the tell, time ex um <laughs> tell the uh, ending how this sort of concludes this whole story uh confusingly um, <laughs> you don't e even say. me who understood it pretty well compared to you apparently uh, the, the ending is intentionally very uh, vague and dreamlike um, but basically um, uh, Peregrine Tease realizes that he is actually the um, uh, er, his previous life was the King Secaucus of Famagusta but he's also the talisman the magical talisman that rested in his crown um, and so he sort of reunites with that aspect of himself and the, uh, the villains, the two scientists, uh, are punished by being shrunk down to microscopic size and, um, everybody else is sort of, um, and the, the leech prince is shriveled up and the, the thistle. No, he goes, he er, falls into a crack and goes to hell, <laughs> the leech or into the Oh, right. Crown, sorry. Anyway. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, I believe the, um, the, uh, genius Thedal is, uh, uh, dissolves into air um and uh uh dorcha ever elverdink and the um uh and the thistle Sahara, george Bopush are united but they end up uh turning back into their 
their true forms and as a, a flower and a thistle. Right. Embracing. And, and, and uh, dying. Peregrine and... What? And dying. They turn into a thistle yep. and, a, and, a, and a flower that then die, but they die sort of growing together so that that's the yeah. get happiness, basically. Yeah. Um, and um, Peregrine, uh, in the sort of quote-unquote real world, ends up with the daughter of the uh, poor bookbinder that he um, uh, aided on, on the Christmas that the, that the story started with, where he gave to a bunch of children. Uh, the daughter is, mm-hmm. is, a, is 18 years old, so he's not marrying a child here, uh, though there still <laughs> is a big age gap there. Um, and uh, her name is Rose, uh, so that goes with the sort of flower motifs as well. Um, and... Uh, yeah, and, and the the book makes a uh, a deal about um, uh, actual love versus um, like being in love versus loving someone, you know? Um, yeah. Where this well, is also like more don't a, haven't they at this point? If he's Sak- King Sakakis, isn't? Yeah, he's technically her father in this. right. Yeah, it's creepy. Um, <laughs> he was in love with uh, somebody who was technically his daughter in another life, but I guess with reincarnation, that sort of thing happens. I guess. Yeah, but yeah, it's still yeah. As a, as a narrative choice, it's an interesting one. They could have just it's not strange, had yes. be his daughter. Nobody well, I guess said that's this because book he's... wasn't strange, Adam. <laughs> I guess the idea is that he becomes kind of a godlike figure. Like that's why he's the yeah. the king and the father. Like he's he's he basically becomes an apotheosis, as it were, and becomes yeah. The, because because he literally then has magic powers and just does everything he feels like doing. <laughs> And, yeah, and fixing everything. Um, though, yeah, though when he returns to his uh, to his mortal to his real life self, uh, he tells Master Flea to uh, um, to get rid of the um, um, the microscope or the 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 lens that can let him see thoughts because it's um, well the book goes into great detail about how most people's thoughts uh, uh, disagree with what they say and most people are you know. Two-faced, backstabbing liars. Um, but um, uh, he wants to sort of remain innocent and um, thinking well of the world. I was just thinking it's sort of like one of those um, uh, movies where it's like a man-child who learns to grow up. You know, those comedies, yeah. the Jud- Judd Apatow comedies. Um, yeah, it's a 40-year-old virgin uh, who becomes the god king of a fairy tale kingdom and also yeah. is a thistle. It's not exactly <laughs> like that, but it, it's got some similarities where uh, no, no, no. it learns to grow up is, late in life sort of thing. Yeah, it's definitely that is the the recurring theme as it were. Uh like that that it's yeah, a grow up and embrace that you're a fairy tale king. <laughs> yeah, well, one might say up, a mixed still... message, but yeah. Grow up, but still retain aspects of your your child itself, because it says, um, you know, him being generous and and wanting to spread joy is a good thing, but also um, he spends a lot of money just throwing parties for himself to recreate a childhood that he vaguely remembers. Yeah, exactly. And all that money could go through for you know to help people. Hmm. Um, Which it kind of. He was kind of doing, but yes. He does, but uh, not like he could be doing it more efficiently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the the moral of the story is learn to be more efficient in giving stuff away by becoming a <laughs> the re-embodiment of a fairy tale king. Um, 
And uh, that's something we can all all appreciate. All relate to. <laughs> but yes, so um, very weird book. And uh, Yeah, so I don't want to be too harsh on it. I mean, uh, I do enjoy this kind of weird, witty thing that they like. That's, that's how a lot of uh, 19th century books are. We talked about Little Baron Trump book. It had some similarities to this as well, that kind of absurdist. I, I think this is better than that. Oh, but, for sure. Yeah. And and But I mean, you can see how like Alice in Wonderland came out of that and all that kind yeah. of just... That, that sort of Though, nonsense Yeah, logic. both of those are much later than this, because this is towards the beginning of the century. But right, yeah. right. Well, you've got um, to assume, uh, yeah, that there was a whole trend that went on for a while uh, with that mm-hmm. kind of... I mean, even if you go into something like... Uh, just to think of something random, the Stroll Peter book, which was, the I think, around the same time as this. And, uh, I don't know that one. That's the one about... Um, Anyway, yes, yeah, shock-headed Peter, um, and all the all the the horrible children's rhymes from Germany, um, hmm. and yeah, and it's it's got it's got that sort of fairy tale, uh, goofy uh, feeling where you can't. I mean, it's not serious. Clearly, you can be you can be seriously unserious when you're writing a kids book, and yeah. especially in this era, uh, in a way, you know, you get that kind of tone that you can't capture anywhere else, really, and uh, that's yeah. really effective but- to me. But yeah, uh, Nutcracker and Mouse King is a little more coherent, I feel, than this. Like this is definitely, even though I, you know, I sort of got it. Uh, it's still kind of um, very dreamlike, very um, uh, odd in some of its logical jumps. And you know, characters are introduced and then nothing happens with them, and other characters uh-huh. come out of nowhere and are really important. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, again, dying of syphilis. So. <laughs> yes, yes, but I, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff here that's that's not necessarily in, in Nutcracker, though that, that one's fine as well. Um, but uh, I don't know, there's lots of ideas that um, you don't really get with more coherent stuff. I don't know if that, um, I mean that as a compliment. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's very, it's very, it's very unafraid to just throw weird stuff out there to the point where you might be a little confused, perhaps. Uh, but, uh, yeah. yeah. Again, when the Thistle Zaharit came in, he just kind of, he's just kind of thrown in as an idea. Like, you just, you gotta roll with this oh, now. Yeah, yeah. The, There's an ambulatory the, Thistle um, now. <laughs> yeah, well, the, um, uh, when George Papouche talks with the, uh, with, um, Lowenhook, um, Lovenhook just starts going off on the backstory. Like, it comes out of nowhere, all this stuff about the Princess Gamahe and Famagusta, and, like, no build-up to that. Hmm. Just, it, it's kind of funny. Like, they're, they're talking, you know, you don't really, um, but you don't realize that the, um, way back in Famagusta when the uh, Leech King bit the, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. But you don't realize that I am actually the reincarnation of the Thistle Saharit, and that you know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very it's very strange in that way. But uh, you know, charming enough. Uh, I just I it, it wasn't it wasn't cohering for me as a story. I guess I might have just been in. I just I might just be a little. It might be my current mindset, but the pre-holiday mindset might be burning me out a little bit <laughs> and making it hard sense. for me to follow. Uh, so maybe blame that blame me for that but it is a very a very strange little uh strange little book um, and it's not very long uh it's a novella um so uh 
although the the writings is dense it's it shouldn't take you too long so I would recommend just checking it out um, also the original uh, Nutcracker story is really interesting hmm. um, I haven't actually seen the full ballet but I imagine it it uh, changes a lot yeah I've only yeah heard actually the music yeah I I, I I only sort of vaguely know uh, I, of course I know all the music I'm not super knowledgeable about the story of the Nutcracker I know it's a I know the the sort of setup, and I'm not sure I. Yeah, it's got a. I mean, there's a there's a seven headed mouse king who's um who's the son of uh, a mouse that was killed in the old kingdom that the Nutcracker comes from, and there's this whole revenge plot, and yeah, it's 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 got a lot in common with this, but probably a little more coherent. Hmm. And shorter. It's it's uh, about half the length, I think. Yeah. So shall we uh, shall we wrap up? Uh, sure. And am um, I gonna read this or are you gonna read it? Oh yeah, uh, I just wanted to you know this is sort of our holiday episode uh, because the story takes place at Christmas. I guess it's enough for Die Hard. It's enough for this. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that this will be our 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 holiday, our Christmas episode, which is uh, more relevant than last year's, which was. Uh, Adventures of Saturn and Verandal, uh, which I only <laughs> oh. realized after the fact that the um, the ending takes place in the North Pole, so that that would have been some sort oh. of connection. Yeah, yeah I, I'm impressed. You remember which one was the Christmas? I remember which one was the Halloween one. I didn't remember which one was the Christmas one. Yeah, so. no, I just remember because we I did the North Pole reference after the fact. <laughs> well, it's time to flee the premises. Har har har. Um, we are the ringmasters of this microscopic circus, uh, Philip Rice and Adam Prosser. We want to thank our producer and engineer, Alex Ross, for keeping the joint hopping. And we're just itching to thank Jack Furick, who wrote our theme song. Well done, I guess. <laughs> just a reminder that we you both wrote have this. a big... <laughs> Shh, quiet. Um, after... <laughs> oh, Phil, you're so lame. <laughs> <laughs> Just a reminder, uh, we both have a Patreon, uh, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. Uh, and if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's, or neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me or Spearhawk underscore for Philip. Happy holidays to all. Until next time.